Welcome to the BioCharisma Podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Gardner. Today we have Dr. Stephanie Seneff. Dr. Seneff is a multidisciplinarian researcher that has, I think, three different degrees from MIT. Uh, she blew the lid off the whole, I guess you would say, narrative around cholesterol being bad for the body. Uh, for me about a decade ago and <laughs> that was one of the like one of the big dominoes in my life to fall since my since my family had been engrossed with cardiac rehab um, and so I just recorded this interview and it's on the heels of me recording an interview with Dr. Tom Cowan and then an interview I had with Mike Wilkerson about the cardiologist uh, Francisco Guasp, Dr. Guasp in Spain. And there's this incredible vista that, that we're upon now when it comes to biology. People like Dr. Stephanie Seneff are multidisciplinarian thinkers where they can look at something from a systems perspective and they can see it not from the dogmatized, specialized view from being within, um, let's just say, a, a, a specific field of study. It's like uh, in scouting, you always want to scout the athletes that uh, play more than one sport because one sport informs the other and the other. You're getting a very well-rounded type of being. Dr. Seneff is this. <laughs> she she went from just starting to look at, you know, the role of statins and their effect on her husband because in her real life, her hubby starts taking statins and his vitals plummet. She looked at the biology. She's obviously a very bright woman. You're going to see on every level that how she can dissect and take apart, dissect and take apart. And in this in in this interview, uh, just just follow it. It's one of these ones where I know I'm going to listen to it over and over and over again to be able to break the code. But uh, a lot of the different information that has come out around uh, COVID-19 the corona, all this stuff over the last few years, she brings a lot of information to the to the floor about. And it essentially, it all centers around organic food. <laughs> we talk about biochar and we talk about ways in which we can infuse our body with the with the nutrition and the aromatics that it needs to be able to combat all the other different things that are engineered into our environment. So uh, I really look forward to hearing the feedback on our Telegram chat from this one, uh, because there is a lot going on. Um, and I, 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 <laughs> I'm at a loss right now. My brain is fried. So I know you guys will enjoy this. I'll see you on the flip side.
Good day, Stephanie Seneff. Should I I call you Dr. Stephanie Seneff? You can call me whatever you like. I'm informal, so whatever feels right to you. Well, welcome to the BioCharisma podcast. I'm really glad to have you on today. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks so much. About 10 years ago, I came across your work uh, when you were on Dr. Joseph Mercola's channel, and you mm-hmm. blew my mind because uh, my parents are in the medical field. I have a surgeon, stepfather, and a, a cardiac rehab um, RN mother for 45 wow. years. <laughs> I grew up in the eighties with margarine and eating brand oh muffins and, oh uh, you know, the cholesterol was the big, bad demon in the room. And, um, about 15, 16 years ago, I got turned on to Weston price and Good that, for you. Yes. that flipped the script for me. Like, you yes. know, Sally Fallon completely script, uh, flipped it for me. And yes. then seeing you with with Dr. Mercola, and then you you your science around the cholesterol myth was so impeccable. Would you mind diving into oh, that? My. With us yeah, today? it's oh sure. We have lots to cover, so we can yeah we can do it all. So do you want to start with that? Yes, I would love to. Yes, and it was statin drugs that um, I got caught up on because my husband got diagnosed with heart disease and put on a high dose statin and the doctor said he needed to take it for life at this four times the normal dosage for life and of course he immediately started having a lot of symptoms and I got really upset and I started studying statin drugs and for me I really dive in you know I don't don't fool around when I'm studying biology I I read the research literature I go right for you know Mm -hmm. the meat so to speak and I pretty much figured out right away the statins were a bad deal and uh, I wanted them off and so we had kind of a battle for a year but he he got off the statin drug and I'm happy to say, and this was like, gosh, probably 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, he hasn't taken any statin drugs for 14 years. So, and he's still no heart attack. He's still doing fine. 77 years old. So Wonderful. I don't think he needed the statin drug. And also we, I learned at the same time that cholesterol is actually good for you. And it's even good for your heart. So I really um, turned things around. I, I read, I wrote several papers together with colleagues over the years about cholesterol and about the the real problem with cholesterol is sulfate. In my opinion, I can get right into the glyphosate issue here because yes. glyphosate is the active ingredient in Roundup. Roundup is pervasive in our environment. It's all over the food supply. We're all being poisoned by Roundup every day when we eat. Uh, probably many of us when we drink water and some of us when we breathe air, it's like all over the place. Most common herbicide on the planet, the US uses more per person than any other country. Uh, and we're sick here. We've got diabetes, obesity, Alzheimer's, heart disease, high blood pressure, all these problems that we face with these chronic diseases, conditions that are putting us on drugs for life. And of course, statin drugs, one of the most common ones that people are taking. And um, the cholesterol is essential for mammalian life. It's absolutely important for your health. And, and the brain has only like 5% of the body's weight and 25% of the body's cholesterol. So the, the brain loves cholesterol. Mm-hmm. And when you go on a cholesterol, low cholesterol diet, you're going to cause problems with your brain. You're going to have brain fog. And statins cause that too. Statins cause, you know, a lot of cognition problems, memory problems. Um, Do you mind if I interject real quick? 
Yeah, go ahead. I know I can rattle on for hours. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I noticed throughout the years, uh, before before I became a builder, I was a, a deep tissue myofascial release massage ah, therapist. Ah, interesting. And I noticed that all of my clients that had very high cholesterol were they shared two things. They were very intelligent. And they had a very high libido. Interesting. That makes sense to me because it's certainly going to need cholesterol for testosterone. It's basically a precursor of testosterone. Right. And it, it's in once I started to come across like the notion that the statins and all the attack on cholesterol to me was actually a, a real attack on manhood. Yeah, I would agree with that. Because that's one of the symptoms, you know, I mean, it's got a lot of symptoms, certainly brain fog and then libido issues and then um, aches and pains all over your body. I mean, it's really nasty to the muscles mm-hmm. and the joints. Uh, it, it's it's really bad news. And uh, it can cause ALS or an ALS-like condition. Mm-hmm. You know, the Dwayne Graveline was, was a uh, physician for the, uh, he calls himself space. He's, he's died, unfortunately, of a, of a case of a ALS-like disease that he think was, he thinks was caused by his statin drug that he took. So he was a doctor mm. who treated, who, who treated the um, astronauts. And that's why he calls himself space doc, but he had a webpage with lots and lots of information. He really dug into the science. He was a friend of mine too. And he helped me, you know, learn about all the ways statin drugs mess you up, but they, they're, they're associated with Parkinson's disease and, as I said, all this um, ALS, you know, Lou Gehrig's disease, it's a really nasty disease. And, um, and he had transient global am- amnesia, Space Doc did, and he wrote a whole book on it. He wrote several books on the statin drugs, um, but one, his first one was uh, Lipitor Thief of Memory, because he had suffered from transient global am- anemia, uh, not anemia, <laughs> am- amnesia, <laughs> sorry. Uh, yeah, just suddenly uh, sort of uh, lost he, he basically woke up not knowing what was going on. He just lost some time. It was just gone. He had no clue about what had happened mm-hmm. during that period of time in which his memory was just gone. Would so, you, and then would you... he, he later got the ALS. So, so you're, you're saying that cholesterol and, and the sulfates, they're, they're mixed. They're together. related. They're, they're very, they're closely, they're joined at the hip. And cholesterol is one of many, many molecules that are biologically active, super important for the body. Um, that needs sulfate to get around. This is really crucial. And I believe that the, I now believe probably the most damaging aspect of glyphosate toxicity is the disruption of this sulfate system. And I wrote about that extensively in my book. I should hold that up here. I have this book, Toxic Legacy, how the weed killer glyphosate is destroying our health and the environment. So this was published in June of 2021. and uh, it's gotten well received, actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, I worked hard on that book to try to keep it as simple as I could while still covering the science. And the science of glyphosate is absolutely fascinating. I, I really um, find it uh, absorbing to, um, to learn about how glyphosate destroys mm-hmm. everything. But I think it's the primary causal factor in a long list of diseases and conditions that we're suffering from today and that you see all over the place in, in, the, in the US, you know, there's just the diabetes and the obesity alone, both of those, I think glyphosate's a major player. Uh, all this many different diseases, of course, autism was the one I focused on originally. Mm-hmm. All these diseases are going up dramatically over time in our country, exactly in step with the dramatic rise in the use of glyphosate on core crops. It's a perfect match. It's just incredibly strong correlation. 
Yeah. And I you thought when that, those days, yeah, <laughs> higher glyphosate <laughs> use, higher autism, higher, uh, higher injections, jabby. Alzheimer's, yeah, inflammatory bowel disease, Alzheimer's, um, liver failure, um, uh, cancers, pancreatic cancer, thyroid cancer, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's, all these conditions. Um, are going up dramatically in step with the rise in glyphosate. And of course, diabetes and obesity are really big in our country. I mean, we've got so many uh, people these days that are huge, you know, you can't get the weight off. And, and that's because glyphosate is disrupting your biology in a major way, your metabolism. It's really messing things up. So, so let's, got microbes. let's use me as a case study. Since moving back to the United States, I've gained 25 pounds. There you I, go. I eat less food here than I did in the tropics. I do move a lot less. Like when I lived in Costa Rica, I pretty much was sweating probably 10, 15 pounds mm. a day because <laughs> it's mm. so hot there. So right. I will say the winter time here, like it's it's a more comfortable environment where I am in the Ozarks. So I don't lose the water weight like I did there. Mm. But it's like mm -hmm. there's like a swelling in my system. Yeah, interesting. We don't have our garden, our garden set yet. This is the first year on our farm. I was just making biochar for the soil. Nice. Doing all the things, prepping for next year's garden. But we don't have our own animals yet. Like I'm I'm seeing like within three years, we'll have everything that we need here at the farm. But the the transition of moving from Central America to here, I've gained all this weight and I am getting older, this, that and the other. Yeah, people do gain weight as they age typically. But I do think um, it's pretty hard not to gain weight if you're being exposed to glyphosate. That's my feeling. And if right. you do actually, you know, just very disciplined and, and restrict yourself, you'll get sick. So it's really, uh, you know, I see people who are determined to be thin especially women right they just can't stand to put on those pounds so they'll be very determined and they'll get sick uh, because you need that weight actually just to combat the glyphosate it, it's helpful to protect you from poisons so let's, because glyph yeah you know, let's, the reason for that a simple reason for that is just that you have uh, fat soluble poisons that we're exposed to things like other in, you know, other you know the chemicals in our environment the PFAS mm -hmm. and the, and the insecticides all this stuff um, those need to be sulfated. That's one of the major ways that the liver detoxes them. Mm -hmm. And glyphosate messes up the sulfate so that it can't detoxify these. And so they end up stuffing them inside fat cells in your belly to keep them away from your system. It's a mm -hmm. way of squirreling them away so they won't cause you harm. Right. So what does sulfate do in the body? Let, let's go back a couple of steps here. So you, we were first talking about statins and their disruption and and we just touched on glyphosate and what what that is actually doing with the sulfate. If we, we could just do like a little remedial chemistry, biochemistry <laughs> okay, good. for the crowd. Yes. So, so the people aren't just like lost in the soup of words. Yeah. And it's interesting because sulfate, sulfur doesn't even have a dietary um, minimum requirement. Sulfur, you know, <laughs> the, the government thinks it's fine. There's no problem. But a lot of people are suffer, suffering from sulfur deficiency just because their diet is depleted. Mm -hmm. And that's partly due to glyphosate. Because in fact, Don Huber was the one who first introduced me to glyphosate. He's a plant, plant pathologist, expert on plants. And um, he was the one, he had, gave a two-hour presentation in 2012 that I was completely mesmerized because he 
he talked about all the different ways that glyphosate is toxic and they fit very well with what I had learned about autism. That's when I really connected the dots between glyphosate and autism. But um, one of the things he showed, he had an experiment where he exposed plants to uh, glyphosate and measured the uh, sulfur uptake and it was way down. Mm -hmm. they, they weren't taking up the sulfur. So it disrupts the take uptake of sulfur and nitrogen and lots of different minerals in the plant. So all these things become deficient when you eat plants that have been exposed to glyphosate. So I think we have a mineral deficiency problem, a sulfur deficiency problem mm -hmm. and, um, in our diet. And so it's micronutrients that we're, we need more of. And of course, all the B vitamins too. Some of the B vitamins come out of the shikimate pathway, mm -hmm. which is the pathway in the gut microbiome that glyphosate famously disrupts. So it's disrupting the supply of the precursors to make the vitamins, the B vitamins, which they usually microbes make them for the host and they're not doing that. And of course, it's also going to be depleted in the foods we eat for the same reason, because they're also being, being disrupted. So we're getting a vitamin deficiency, a mineral deficiency, a sulfur deficiency, and then a toxicity from the glyphosate itself. It's all packaged up in the food that we eat today. Mm -hmm. Sulfur, um, so the sulfur system is really interesting and sulfur containing amino acids are also very, very important in, for our health. Uh, the amino acids are the building blocks of proteins. And mm -hmm. there's about 20 of them, you know, and there's the DNA code that that instructs how to make a protein, a particular sequence of amino acids, quite interesting, the biology of that. And there are three, I guess there are uh, maybe four sulfur containing amino acids. Um, taurine is an interesting one to me, and it's not a coding amino acid. We could get back to taurine later because that's a really good source of sulfate. And taurine also is something you can take uh, as a supplement. You know, some people find that very effective. Um, cysteine and homocysteine and methionine are the other three. Mm -hmm. And um, all of them contain one sulfur, each of them contains one sulfur atom. And, um, but they're really important in your biology. All of them are really important. And of course, uh, there's uh, glutathione, which is three mm -hmm. amino acids, one of which is cysteine, which is a sulfur containing. And methionine is the one that is used at the very beginning. Every time you make a, a protein, methionine is the first thing that goes down in the sequence is quite interesting. It sort of controls the initiation of protein synthesis. And methionine is also a source of methyl groups. And so you have methylation deficiency when you don't have enough methionine. And glyphosate causes methionine deficiency. That's been shown in studies. Mm -hmm. So that's another problem um, with the sulfur. But then also um, these amino acids can get converted into sulfate. This sort of oxidation process that produces sulfate from them. And then that sulfate uh, is uh, it's activated by being attached to an ATP molecule. A modified ATP molecule makes something called PAPS, phosphoadenosyl phosphosulfate, PAPS. And PAPS synthase, I suspect, is being disrupted by glyphosate. Um, but also the, uh, the um, well, in fact, it's been shown in, in microbial studies. A study on E. coli showed that glyphosate suppressed critical enzymes involved in making PAPS synthase, uh, making PAPS, and PAPS is a universal sulfate donor. So mm. when you have a, su a suppression of the ability to turn sulfate into this activated sulfate form, which is the PAPS, now you've got a problem with delivering sulfate to any molecule that you want to attach it to, because every time an enzyme attaches sulfate to a molecule, it's taking it from PAPS. So if PAPS is deficient, then all the sulfated molecules are deficient. And that's what I think is going on. Wow. So what does sulfate, what, what action does it cause in the body? So the tricky thing is that you have these fat-soluble molecules, and cholesterol is one of them. It's a really good example. Fat-soluble molecules, you stick a sulfate on it, and you can throw it out into the blood, and it can go. It doesn't have to be packaged up inside a lipid particle. 
it's okay. free to go. Mm -hmm. And it will actually stick itself into the membranes of lipid particles with the sulfate sticking out. Like, so for example, an LDL particle, that's the thing, LDL is too high, you got to get on a statin drug, right? Mm -hmm. And the problem is that that LDL has to hide the cholesterol because it can't be sulfated. So it has to be hiding, hiding inside a particle. And that LDL also depends on cholesterol sulfate in its membrane to make itself water soluble. Mm -hmm. So the LDL part particle has uh, too much cholesterol inside it because it doesn't have enough cholesterol sulfate to put in the membrane. It has too little cholesterol sulfate in the membrane, which makes it susceptible to oxidative damage and also to glycation damage. So the lipid particle is not protected well because there's not enough sulfate surrounding it. The sulfate gives it negative charge which is also important for circulation. And the sulfate also pro uh, produces a gel layer around these particles that protects them from attack by various things in the blood that might attack them. So you're keeping the LDL particles safe by virtue of putting cholesterol sulfate in its membrane. And you don't need to have as much LDL to send around because you can just ship the cholesterol sulfate all by itself. So there's a lot of good reasons why you want to be able to add sulfate to cholesterol. Mm -hmm. And if you can't do that, you're going to have, I think, a, a reduced supply of both cholesterol and sulfate systemically, and particularly to the heart, because the heart loves both of those molecules. The heart needs a lot of sulfate and needs a lot of cholesterol, mm -hmm. and it's not getting enough. And so the reason why you get uh, cholesterol piling up in the blood vessels leading to your heart is because it needs to be ready to go. As soon as there's a supply of sulfate, it's out the door, and it's shipping cholesterol and sulfate to the, to the heart. So that's actually like a squirrel st storing nuts. You know, it's storing this. It, it, why would the body be so stupid as to try to clog up the arteries that lead to the most important organ in the body? It doesn't make any sense, right? right? Unless it's really, really essential that that organ get that nutrient that's trapped there because there's no sulfate. Mm -hmm. So you need the sulfation system to deliver the cholesterol to the heart. And it's actually heart disease is a cholesterol deficiency problem. It's wild to say that, but that's what I believe, a cholesterol deficiency problem and a sulfate deficiency problem. In but our, really a cholesterol sulfate deficiency problem. In our diet, if we were to eliminate glyphosate, what's the easiest, what are the most bioavailable sulfur-based foods? Right, so eliminating glyphosate is actually not, you can't eliminate it, but you can cut it way back by going organic. And so uh, when we shop, we always look for the certified organic label, very important, certified organic food that can really cut back on your supply of glyphosate. And it'll make a difference in your health if you just do that one thing, then sulfur containing foods. And um, so taurine, I mentioned taurine, taurine is a super good um, nutrient because the gut microbes know how to convert it into sulfate. Oh, Our great. cells can't, taurine is considered to be inert. And they don't exactly understand why we store it, but we store high levels of taurine in our heart, in our brain, and in our liver. We store high levels of free taurine. And when you have a heart attack, the heart releases taurine. And when you have seizures, the brain releases taurine. And mm. that taurine circulates to the liver. The liver picks it up and the liver attaches the taurine to the bile acids and ships it back to the gut. And then the gut microbes grab the taurine and convert it to sulfate. So this is a way to, the taurine, I think the stored taurine is a backup system for sulfate when sulfate is deficient. And sulfate deficiency in turn is probably what drives these um, brain attack, the, the seizures or the heart attack. Wait, you know, wait, you, you just by the sulfate a brain attack. <laughs> brain attack, yeah, well, sort of, right? <laughs> no, I don't know. I don't know technically what a seizure actually is. Yeah, well, it's sort of, you know, your brain is actually uh, Shorting. sending out electrical, yeah, electrical signals. It's, it's, it's sort of sparking with electrical signals. Yeah. A certain frequency, so um, low frequency signals in the brain.
Um, yeah. Wow. So, uh, so, so that's really interesting. So I really think I, I have, uh, you know, and it's funny because I figured out sulfate deficiency as a problem in autism before I even knew about glyphosate. And I didn't exactly figure it out because there was a woman I was studying uh, her work. Rosemary Waring was her name. Mm-hmm. She's probably, I don't know what she's up to now. She's probably pretty old at this point because she was doing um, autism. She was studying autism in 1990. She had several patients and she was looking at metabolites in their urine to try to figure out what's, you know, she's some kind of metabolic metabolic problem that they're suffering from. Mm-hmm. And she was the one who identified extremely high levels, a remark, you know, outrageously high levels of sulfite and thiosulfate, two versions of sulfur that are not sulfate, you know? They're things that could become sulfate, but they're not. So there's like, she said something wrong with the sulfation system. And she suspected that maybe they had a defect in the ability to uh, add sulfate to phenolic compounds. So phenol sulfation is one of the things that's really important in the, in the gut. Mm-hmm. And especially because these microbes, these uh, Clostridia species, for example, they release a lot of toxic metabolites that are fat soluble and you need to add sulfate to make them water soluble so you can get rid of them you know and clear them out through the urine and if you can't add sulfate they're going to become toxic to the brain and so she was suspecting that these kids were unable to add sulfate to these toxic phenolic compounds that were being produced by the gut microbes Mm. and that was causing brain toxicity and much much later just a few years ago there was a paper that came out that was really interesting to me. And I was so thrilled to see that because I had been hypothesizing, yeah, some kind of problem with sulfate autism for a long, long time, but I wasn't getting a lot of other people saying that, you know, I was kind of alone in that space. And, um, and this paper showed experimentally that these autistic kids had reduced uh, the, the activity of the enzyme that adds sulfate, it's called a sulfotransferase. And it takes it from PAPS and it sticks the sulfate onto a phenolic compound to make it safe. That enzyme was severely suppressed in these autistic kids. And it was also suppressed in the blood. And then they even found heparin sulfate, sulfation suppressed in the brain and deficiency in heparin sulfate in the brain. So that was just phenomenal to me because I had already seen mouse studies that were showing really interesting, these mice that they can make that are kind of genetically engineered to have autism. I don't know if you've heard about them. Yes. Autistic mice. Yeah, it's pretty fun. So, so I was studying these autistic mice to see exactly what did they do to them to make them autistic. And then, um, and it pointed to heparin sulfate because these mice had a deficiency in heparin sulfate in the brain. And there was one study where they actually injected some kind of toxin into the cerebrospinal fluid when these mice were born, which messed up their ability to make heparin sulfate in the brain ventricles. And they, these mice delivered all the symptoms of autism just with that one defect. So that's almost proof that heparin sulfate deficiency in the brain is primary. I think the primary factor in autism mm. caused by glyphosate, caused by glyphosate. So if a mother, let's say a mother has been, you know, eating glyphosate rich food for 20 years and, or, Uh, I I should just say a woman and then she gets pregnant and now the fetus is actually being exposed to this in utero. What is her body going to shunt everything that it can to make sure baby is, is, is healthy as possible. And if there isn't sufficient sulfate or if there isn't sufficient cholesterol from the mother, that's when you start to see the child itself present these these characteristics of you know autism or 
whatever right. whatever malady there might be. Yeah, actually, cholesterol sulfate it, it goes up dramatically when you're pregnant, and especially in the placenta, it's highly expressed in the placenta, and I think it plays a crucial role in delivering cholesterol and sulfate to the baby. And so, uh, actually, the mother I've heard that the mother actually dumps poisons into the embryo. It's kind of interesting because I've heard that a lot of times the firstborn child. Mm -hmm. um, is more toxic than the rest because the mother kind of unloaded all her toxins into the kind of fascinating because you almost think that maybe if you've got, got a really big bad toxic load you kind of try to in a sense kill that first child to flush it all out and now you can have your second child who will be healthy you know like have an embryo that just you, you miscarry or something because things are so toxic i well, don't know talk, it's just they talk about that with fruit trees you know, mm. your, your first and last fruit aren't your best. It's the middle. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, the, and nobody's ever explained it to me until what you just said. It kind of makes sense is that, <laughs> so you get pregnant, nature now knows you're viable. <laughs> okay, this is a viable reproducer. You're right. Okay. You're capable of getting pregnant. There, there's more than one. There's likely more than one chance that this this being will get pregnant again. Let's go ahead right. and get everything get, out. Just dump all the poisons and clear it out. Now we can have the second child who will be really healthy. So I suspect, you know, it's kind of interesting, but I think it's quite possible that's the case. Well, other than like just the social aspect of being the youngest kid within a family, I've seen over and over and over again when it comes to athletics, the youngest child within a group of kids is always the most athletically gifted. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. It's, wow. it, and, it, and it's very well known in scouting circles. And it could be just because they have an example, you know, they're looking at the older brother. Right. They see whatever. older kids running around. They learn how to run around. And, yeah. And so they're under <laughs> and more. And they have big older kids to play with. So they're going to be challenged too. Right. So that could right. be part of it. If there's some reasons, social reasons that that could be true, but that's interesting. I didn't know that. Oh yeah. I've seen it over and over and over again that mm -hmm. in, in scouting the youngest of the group, even if there's different fathers, but they're all coming from the same mother. The the youngest always ends up being like the the physical dynamo. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So getting back to the foods, because I didn't really cover that. I got stuck on taurine, which I'm so fascinated with. But so taurine is a sulfur-containing amino acid that can become sulfate uh, through the gut microbes. But uh, you also have, um, you know, methionine and cysteine. If you eat animal-based foods, you'll have a higher... Um, input of, uh, of amino acids that contain sulfur. So sulfur-rich amino acids are more prevalent in animal-based foods than in plant-based foods. But there are good sources of sulfur that are not amino acids in plants. So you can have garlic is one of my favorites, garlic and onion, and uh, also cruciferous vegetables, broccoli, cauliflower, uh, mm -hmm. cabbage. I love all of those and we eat those tons. We have lots of uh, all those things. We eat a lot in my family mm -hmm. for the sulfur because they have a really nice form of sulfur called sulforaphane it's not it's not an amino acid but it's a perfectly fine source of sulfur and then you have uh, eggs and seafood seafood is fantastic for sulfur mm. and um and also taurine taurine is high in especially in deep water fish they have a lot of taurine and mm. eggs have taurine too so egg, eggs are really good you know, organic eggs are really good food lots of cholesterol which is good for you <laughs> and saturated fat animal-based saturated fat is the best fat yeah. i believe the best fat so, uh, so good. Yeah. And Western Price Foundation has that message too. So, yes. Um, 
I mean, herbs and spices too. Yeah. Herbs and spices. Eat a lot of herbs and spices. That's good for lots of things, but one of the things will be sulfur, but they also have a lot of polyphenols and flavonoids, you know, interesting biologically active molecules in plants that are, um, that are very nutritious for, for the oxidative damage and things like that to protect you from, because oxidative damage is a real serious problem. And of course, glutathione I mentioned earlier, which is a really important antioxidant in the liver, mm-hmm. it's, it's depleted by glyphosate and it's also oxidized by glyphosate. That's been shown in multiple studies. Glyphosate mm-hmm. uh, causes the liver to lose its glutathione and causes the glutathione in the liver to become oxidized, which makes it not useful. It needs to be reduced in order to be able to be an antioxidant and have an antioxidant effect. Mm-hmm. Well, do, is there any evidence in any of the literature that you've studied that it that says that there's a compounding effect with the let's just call it dirty EMF along with the glyphosate right. consumption and things like that? Does that agitate the situation? Probably. I've been seeing a lot of discussions around EMFs uh, in my circle, and I have so far not really joined that club. I think mostly because I'm surrounded by EMFs. You know, I sort of like to have a very good internet and (laughs) don't really want to believe that. I mean, I'm careful with my phone, you know, and I turn off my computer at night. So I do a few things, you know, that would be gestures towards protecting from EMFs. I think there probably is something to this idea that EMFs are toxic. And again, they're a good example because there are so many things in our environment that are new today that we didn't have a hundred years ago mm-hmm. that we're so comfortable with them that we just think they must not, they must be fine. And there's also this sense of, oh, the government would have stopped it if it was toxic, which is not true at all because the government mm-hmm. is very happy to let all these poisons continue ad nauseum. The government is not really doing their job to protect us from, you know, all the insecticides and herbicides and fungicides and PFAS and uh, lead. I mean, all these things, aluminum, all these environmental assaults that we face today Mm -hmm. uh, because of our lifestyle, you know, and then you have EMFs on top of it. So it's really um, worrisome to me that we, whether we can get back to a place where we can be healthy. Because I really think if we could live off the land and disconnect from the internet and just, you know, self-sufficient that's kind of a beautiful concept to me and I'm not there for sure but you know it would be um, there are people who are trying to kind of um, build their own little world where they can be self-sufficient and not have to depend on other people's stuff because they want to protect themselves from all the toxicity that they'll that they'll be exposed to if they uh, yeah where I live is a, a pretty large homesteading haven and where nice. I was in, in Costa Rica, there was tons of people that moved there for food sovereignty. Yes. In fact, my business partners started a company called Vida Authentica, which was about, uh, it was a co-op that brought all the organic farmers of the region. That in, is so nice. Into this one little area to sell their wares and to sell their food. And um, it was very disconcerting in Costa Rica because the last few generations the families have gotten smaller and smaller and smaller Uh. so when you used to have like you know say let's just say 40 acres and you had 12 kids right they can help you out on the farm you could manage it but now that Mm -hmm. these families are only having two kids Mm -hmm. that and so they've turned to glyphosate Mm -hmm. glyphosate in Costa Rica 
Costa Rica has the highest glyphosate consumption per capita in the world. Really? Wow. I did not know that. That is so sad. By six times. Oh my. Wow. And it's a water soluble chemical. That's shocking. I would like, there were these times where the gringos and the ticos would have these like real cultural, you know, loggerheads meet because they would like go down like the different farms along the public road. They would just spray glyphosate openly. Like the guy that was spraying it, he didn't have any Mm. protection or anything like that. And he's a, he's a government person spraying along. Oh, Oh, no, no, this would be a, this would be a farm owner. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm sure they, they subsidized the glyphosate there, but this, there wasn't like, you know, out in the sticks, there wasn't like government doing anything other than supplying electricity. (laughs) We fixed our own roads. We did our own water. Interesting. But a lot of us moved there because we're had this whole notion of like, oh my goodness, we're moving to an organic area could not be further from the uh, that's really a shame that's just that's just so sad to me that it's so hard to find a place to live these days you know well it's kind of fun i started to do my research when i realized that the central america uh, didn't fit my family needs and i chose the ozarks because my first permaculture teacher he actually, when he was leaving Central America, he he told us all. He was like, "Yeah, I'm 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 going to go build this massive greenhouse in the Ozarks." And we were like, "The Ozarks?" <laughs> yeah. And he's like, "Yeah, it's just as biodiverse as this area. In fact, it and it has I forget what in in the growing window uh-huh. it's number five. So you have like so many different." things that you can grow here and there's That's an really nice ab- abundant fresh water and the beautiful thing is nobody wants to live here yeah it's it's interesting it's like ozark hillbilly right <laughs> it's awesome like yeah. the like the little towns here now are starting to have all these homesteaders moving in and like That's i guess really interesting 40 years ago the uh, same thing happened where tons of people did this back to the land movement and moved in the areas and a lot of them were just like growing weed (laughs) (laughs) but like the people i know that are moving into the area are are growing food they're having small they're like little farms like the the, i call it a homestead but i i have people i know people that are doing like everything doing the farming thing but it's kind of neat because they the area has like grown fat like it was went fallow there were so many mm. larger farms. Right. The small farms disappeared. I, I um, my, my grandparents actually both had farms in Southern Missouri. Where? Like, <laughs> well, little, t- well, Mar- the little tiny towns, Marionville and Clever. I don't know if you know about them. Clever, Missouri and Marionville, Missouri. I'm, I'm in Willow Springs. Okay. That's, that's close, in, isn't it? That's in Southern Missouri. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. We went back uh, maybe 10 years ago you know, just to see. And it was so depressing. Marionville was basically a ghost town. It was, uh-huh. All the ta- downtown was boarded up and it looked really, really depressed. Clever yeah. was a little tiny town, but it had, um, it, it was on the highway to this Ozark uh, activity. Uh, it's a place like Disneyland, I forget what it was called mm-hmm. that we, we went to down. So, so Clever actually got some uh, input 
money input through the fact that it was along the road to this uh, entertainment uh, zone. So they had, mm-hmm. they were doing a little better, but, um, but Maryville right, was really depressed. It really, yes, Branson, that's right. Yes, I was trying to think of the name. So uh, Maryville was really depressed. It was just awful. It was so sad to see because um, all the small farms just went out of business once the chemical-based agriculture took over, you know, and we yeah. need to get them back. We really need those small family farms. I think that's going to be the answer. I think it's happening now. I mean, I, I'm within a peer group of 20, 24 families that have been moved to the area the last two or three years because COVID like created diaspora. Yeah. Yes. Everybody <laughs> moved everywhere. <laughs> and, so, and so like I have neighbors that are from Texas, from California, from Oregon. You know, my wife and I came up from Costa Rica. We're Floridians, though. We know other Floridians that have moved here. Yeah, like, in, but it's because there's this nexus of a very long growing season. It's centrally located. So people that don't want to fly, they can drive. Right. Yes. Um, there's tons of good water and the the land prices here are still inexpensive. Yeah. And it's quite beautiful too. The Ozarks are quite pretty. It is. It's yeah. very pretty. So I'm I'm just like, for me, I was like looking at the Venn diagram of all the things to consider. You made a really good choice. Yeah. That's interesting. It it's I, I couldn't be happier. Like the weather here fits my body much better than the tropics uh-huh. with all the humidity. You but, have kids? Yes, I have one and we're working on number two. Oh nice. Young or what's that? She's Young? three. Three. Nice. Yeah. That's a fun age. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, they call it a three-nager. She's a three-nager. <laughs> three-nager. She's just, That's a good name. <laughs> she's fully embodied and like, you know, That's she true. likes she likes to think she runs things. But mm-hmm. the thing with the glyphosate in Central America was it was very disconcerting because what we came to find was that when the heavy rains would come, because we had really heavy rains in the Southern Pacific zone, at least six months out of the year, like it was the rainy season for eight months out of the year, but like heavy, heavy rains every day. Mm. And all that glyphosate that would be sprayed along the roadsides was now water soluble. Yeah. Not nasty, really nasty. And all of us permaculture people, we were trying to figure out what was creating the the river degradation there so quickly. Yeah. And there they call the streams quebradas. And it it ended up being this glyphosate issue. And there was nothing that we could do with the locals because the locals no longer had the manpower to hand chop things because they're traditionally you had machetes and you had 10 kids and now they don't have the 10 kids hey it's here <laughs> to drive by and spray interesting yes and so sad stephanie the level look up stomach cancer charts in the world in costa rica oh, wow. is like off the chain wow of their bean production like when they produce oh my beans, they all eat Every- undercooked beans and they don't pressure cook them and they spray so much glyphosate. And I, I heard right before harvest, the beans, in fact, in Canada, they were the government actually measured glyphosate levels in a whole bunch of foods, both local, you know, Canadian and imported. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, and so they, it was a book published uh, 
by, by my friend, Tony Mitra. He's the Canadian citizen who harassed the government to get them to do this. And they finally agreed to test all these foods. And his book is pretty dry, but it's got all this data for the results that they obtained. He called it Poison Foods of North America. And it was both Canada and the United States that had high levels of glyphosate. And some of the highest levels were consistently found in uh, legumes like chickpeas, garbanzo beans, mm-hmm. um, lentils, you know, um, they had really high levels of, of uh, glyphosate oh, because I, they were sprayed right before harvest. It's not it, a GMO crop. It's to kill the crop at harvest. Yeah, the desiccation process in the areas that are super humid, they'll use glyphosate as a desiccant. Yes. And, and it's the worst thing ever because it gets concentrated at that mm-hmm. point. There's That's nothing really interesting. There's nothing to wash it away or anything. They're literally yeah. using it as a drying agent. And you know, when you think about desiccant, right? Glyphosate desiccant, you think about the forest fires, because I really think those, we're having such a mess with forest fires on mm-hmm. the West Coast, all the way up into Canada. Canada is getting nasty forest fires these days, and they didn't used to have much of a problem because it was cold enough. It was harder for, but now, you know, all these fires in California and throughout the West. Um, they use a lot of glyphosate in the forest. I, I've been finding out the forest industry likes to use glyphosate to sort of keep the uh, hardwood trees from growing. They want to just really? grow pines because they're fast growing. Yeah, they use a lot of glyphosate in, in the forest industry. I and know. I think they're drying out the entire forest, which is why you just light a match and the forest burns, you know. So I think that I think glyphosate's a major player in those um, fires. Yes. Including, of course, in, in here in Hawaii, because they use a lot of glyphosate in Maui. And, you know, that town, Lahaina, just burned down. Mm-hmm. I bet you glyphosate plays a role in that, too. Now, I don't know. I haven't really studied it, but I do know they use glyphosate a lot in Maui. They've been, they've been fighting it. You know, the, um, they had the Maui miracle when they actually uh, passed a law that, was, uh, the, uh, that protected, you know, tried to restrict the use of, of these chemicals. And, um, and the, the opposition, you know, the, the people who... The, the, the industry who wanted to keep the, the uh, poisons going spent like 30 times as much money uh, fighting this law, but yet it still passed because these people were so uh, determined, you know, the, the, the locals who were fighting mm-hmm. uh, against the chemical industry actually won. It's called the Maui miracle because they didn't expect that bill to get to make it into law, but it did. Um, when, when did that happen? In Maui. This was uh, oh, several years back. And we had one here in Kauai too. I'm in Kauai. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the islands actually uh, of Hawaii are being assaulted by the chemical industry and partly because they have a, we have a growing season all year round. So they mm-hmm. like to develop the new GMOs here in Kauai. So they basically poison the crop and whatever survives then that becomes, uh, it, it's a process that they use to, 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 to um, obtain a version of the crop that's resistant to glyphosate. You know, they do a process with genetic engineering and try to get a, another crop to be, um, uh, resistant to glyphosate to make a GMO mm-hmm. resistance. And they have to use much more glyphosate to do that than they would um, just to grow the crops. So the west side of Kauai, where I live, is very heavily contaminated by the chemical industry. It's really, really sad. And we had a big law, law here, that, a battle you know, with a bill that I was involved with back in 2014, maybe, I think, mm-hmm. that also passed. So we had actually three of the so Oahu has by far the most population because it has Honolulu, it's a you know, big uh, population. The other three are much smaller in population, but the other three have all had individual county level bills that got passed into law um, by activists who fought really hard for those bills. So we're struggling, but then we end up with um, 
the law doesn't become effective because they'll say um, you, you'll get sued and they'll say that the state is the one who controls these things and the county's not allowed to have these rules, you know, so the laws get defanged and they don't work. So it's really been frustrating here uh, mm. in Kauai. I, it makes like I this all this what you're talking about, my friends that were in the organic food movement in Costa Rica went through very similar things <laughs> that when it came to you know there might be some local legislation might get passed but then there's no way to really enforce that local exactly. legislation yeah and you get lawsuits to try to stop it to say that wasn't that law wasn't legal you know it would violated the rules and they, they what they do is they're getting more and more control at the top starting with, of course u.s government even above the government level with these specific you know uh, packs that they do they, they get um, regulations above the uh, country level to say, so for example, in Europe, uh, one, I forget, I think one of the countries in Europe might've been Austria, uh, banned glyphosate. And then they were told, no, you can't do that because the European Union controls who can do that. So it's like you keep on losing uh, at the bottom, you, you, you defang them so they can't, they don't have any power to do anything. And then you control the top by throwing lots of money at them. You know, that's how the system works, I think. Mm-hmm. And the top can be very high up above the country level. So let's say you have a family, they go ahead and buy a piece of land somewhere and that they know that the, the land maybe for God knows how many years conventional, it was conventional. Let's just put it that way. So you had your herbicides, your pesticides, all those types of things. And They've let the that land has gone fallow. It was a defunct farm because I'm dealing this. A lot of my friends have bought old dairy farms, mm-hmm. and so dairy in this area was gutted like ten years ago. Mm-hmm. How it got gutted, I don't know, but apparently all the investment into dairy mm. really went south, and mm. so tons of people lost a lot of land because you know they invested in their their their. Um, they're all the different equipment for milking and all the rest of well, it. They probably had grass-fed beef, right? The, the yeah. dairy cows were grass-fed. I mean, that's probably why they went defunct, right? Because now they they put them into these um, massive, you know, um, CAFOs, the uh, confined animal feeding operations, right? They don't have um, grass anymore. They feed them toxic food and they keep them confined. And then um, those dairies are huge, huge numbers of cows. Um, very, very toxic, of course. You know, and you've got all this concentrated manure too, because it's just ridiculous the way we handle uh, cows today. Because both dairy cows and uh, beef cattle, because we um, we crowd them in these um, very um, unsanitary conditions, and then we feed them lots of contaminated foods with glyphosate. Mm -hmm. And now they've got these waste in their their manure, which normally cow manure would be useful for the grass. Cow manure is a nice nutrient for the grass grass mm. to grow so it helps the grass grow but no you feed the cow the corn and soy that you've taken over the grass field with corn and soy that you're growing for the cow now right and the corn and soy is terrible for the soil mm-hmm. whereas the grass is actually capturing carbon and putting it into the soil so it's helping the carbon problem but the mm. gmo crops are not because the, the, it's terrible for, I, I think that climate change i think glyphosate plays a major role in climate change and we're not uh, we're ignoring that mostly we're ignoring it but it's very clear to me because that's been shown experimentally that glyphosate disrupts the uptake of nitrogen into the crop. So you have to use more nitrate fertilizers. 
And then they run off when it rains, they run off into the waterways. And now you get excess nitrogen in the waterways, which causes an overgrowth of uh, algae and things like that. And you get this dead zone, you get a real mess in the water. And then you get nitrous oxide in the reducing environment. The nitrous oxide is a gas it releases into the air. It's a hundred times worse than carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas. Mm. So you really messed up the, the, um, the atmosphere through this process of overdoing the nitrogen fertilizer and letting it wash into the waterways. And that's also making the waterways a really bad place to be. I mean, it's, it's really toxic. And then you've got the glyphosate itself. Glyphosate has both phosphorus and nitrogen. The, the atom, the molecule has both of those. So it's a great nutrient source for a, um, for a species that can break it down. Mm-hmm. And for example, cyanobacteria, they can break down glyphosate. So they love it. They've got nitrogen, they've got five phosphorus, they can thrive. And you get an overgrowth of these, what, what are called blue-green algae, but it's cyanobacteria. And then you get this toxic uh, red algae, you know, you get a real mess in the waterways that we're seeing today. Of, um, well, my family in Florida, now the intercoastal waterway and like Vero Beach and, you know, just north of Lake Okeechobee along the intercoastal, they can't even enjoy their patios in the evenings because of the red algae all throughout the intercoastal. Exactly. That's I've been following Florida because Florida is a really good example where they're using lots of glyphosate. Even in the waters, they're using glyphosate to control the, the weeds, the invasive weeds in the water. I remember it as a kid. They used to go in the canal right behind me and I, I would watch them because my dad, one of my chores... I would go in with a rake and pull out all of the this growth that would happen in the in the overflow of the flood canals. For those of you that are just listening to this, the the Florida is essentially a completely engineered (laughs) environment south of Lake Okeechobee that's at sea level. And so they have all these lock systems to move water. Mm. from the Everglades to the intercoastal and vice versa. And a lot of these canals end up having stagnant water. It's not like- Yes, it's not not flowing. It's not, it doesn't move on its own. I see, that's nasty. So they pump- mosquitoes too, right? (laughs) You have mosquitoes, you have water moccasins, and then you get this, it's not an algae, but it's like this weird plant. It's not like a lily pad, but it's like, Imagine if you had really strong spaghetti. It wow, grows like all, and it just, it just becomes everything up. Yeah, it messes everything up. So my, <laughs> my, one of my chores was I would have to go into the canal and I always went barefoot, you know, just oh my trunks and I would just pull this stuff out manually. Wow. And I remember calling my that's dad. That's probably not happening anymore, right? They're just dumping glyphosate in there. No, I'll I t- called my dad from college and this is mid nineties. And I was like, Hey dad, are you, how's the canals doing and stuff like that? And he's like, Oh, it's great. The city is just spraying now. Oh no. Oh my God. I didn't. I, yeah. I knew that they were spraying to control invasive weeds in the waterways, but I had no idea it was this bad. You know, the manatees, I don't know if you've followed yep. the manatees because they're in really bad shape. This year, yeah. they've been dying in record numbers. I wrote an article about it uh, together with Jennifer Margulis. We published a, an article on it uh, in, in, I forget, in, I should know, which it was a, um, a, a good journal, you know, online article mm-hmm. on the manatees. And um, they... Uh, they're really sick. And I think glyphosate is, is a huge factor in their sickness. Because, and in fact, I found a paper that showed when you have murky water 
and you put glyphosate into the water, and then you measure shortly after you measure how much glyphosate's in the water, it goes way down really fast. And the reason for that is because it goes right into the biomass that's mm -hmm. in that water. So when you have water that has a lot of biomass, the glyphosate gets sucked up into the biomass, a thousand times as much concentration in the biomass as in the free water zone. And so you think it's gone, but it's not gone, it's hiding. And then the, the manatees eat that biomass. So they're just being really poisoned with glyphosate. And that's oh, why they're dying. Those poor little sea cows. And they're so cute. I've actually seen them as we went down uh, many yeah. years ago. <laughs> Yeah, um, where I grew up, there was like, a, they would, they would congregate near a bunch of the power stations because of the hot water that would come out mm. and dump into the canals. And so we would go feed the manatees and everything. That's so fun. And you'd see yeah. parrot fish, you'd see like, I mean, there was like tarpon, parrot. And now fish. there's probably almost nothing, right? No, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty sterile down there. Like you can feel just the, the overdevelopment, the population you know, they pump all like the, there's so many people that are on pharmaceuticals and everything like mm -hmm, that, mm -hmm. that the city, that's another issue. They, they openly say that they pump the sewage into the aquifer to keep the water level high enough for them to be able to, to have city water because it's been in a drought condition for so long. Wow. And then one of the questions asked, well, what about the sewage? They're like, oh, that sinks. Don't worry about it. But of course, what's in the, and if you try to re, you know, fix the sewage with the water treatment plant, no. good luck with that, right? Because it's so hard to get all these things out. And, and the, I worry about all the drugs, especially, for example, the cancer drugs, because they're super toxic, you know, mm -hmm. the drugs people take for cancer. They're, they're not getting fully metabolized and they're getting back into the sewer system. And, and uh, I remember reading about metformin Metformin is a, is a diabetes drug. Tons of people are taking metformin mm -hmm. and it's uh, you know, it's a pretty benign drug. I wasn't really worried about it particularly, you know, not like statin drugs. Um, but apparently it really sticks around and it messes up the, uh, the fish. It, it caught, it disrupts their sexual development mm -hmm. and it sticks around for a long time. So, I mean, we've got all these drugs that we're taking that are all chemicals and just mixing them all together in the waterways and it's amazing that any fish are still alive. I think the fish must be really hard to survive that, you know? It's, it's just really sad. I don't know how we get to where we need to go. I, it's what one thing that keeps me awake at night, you know? How do we get there? With especially all this resistance from the industry and the government, you know, it's just really a battle. Yeah, that's, that's my next question because I've kind of had my... I've been single focused for quite a while on food sovereignty. That's been a, a theme in my life for quite a while. And that's why I've chosen to live, quote unquote, off grid. So I did have some some more of a say on like what my local watershed is, some more of a say of what the inputs would be into my body. Like I would say 80 to 90% of my calories are coming from local farms. That's really nice. That's such a great message to get out to people. Really need to get people thinking about doing that themselves and finding yeah. a way. And then I started a company that makes biochar. Mm -hmm. and biochar is pyrolyzed carbon. It's essentially activated carbon. And the more and more I read about what that's used in industry for actual chemical suppression, 
in the mm -hmm. cleansing of water, <laughs> the more mm -hmm. I'm like, yay, I'm so glad I got into, into biochar because are, are you familiar with biochar? A little bit, but tell me more. I'm interested. So when you pyrolyze any biomass, pyrolyze means you cook it without uh -huh. any oxygen. Okay. So you, uh -huh. you heat it past 800, 850 degrees Fahrenheit, all the volatiles will start to leave the body. Mm, I see. You're burning everything off except right. the carbon. So you're exactly. ending up with pure carbon. Yeah, that makes sense. Yes. But because there's no oxidative stress from the oxygen molecule during the, the process, it becomes the most diamagnetic material in the world. Interesting. Wow. So like if you looked at a scale of diamagnetism, like the most diamagnetic metal that there is, is bismuth. At, mm -hmm. On the scale, it's 13. Pyrolyzed carbon is 40. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's amazing. And so I'm, I'm not an expert when it comes to diamagnetism and paramagnetism and what that actually means on an electrical level, other than yeah. There's no stray electrical uh, signals that can get through something that's that diamagnetic. Mm. And so in making like uh, biochar paints, or if I put biochar into stucco for, for concrete or whatever, there won't be any EMF that will move through that. Wow, that's it, interesting. It completely will block a, a microwave, uh, something on the frequency level of a microwave. As it pertains to what it does for plants in the ground, what I understand is, is that it's one of these ultra, ultra microporous substances, the carbon matrix that invites all aerobic bacteria. Hmm. And apparently the, the aerobic bacteria are the really healthy bacteria in soils. And then this also promotes the right type of fungal intrusion into the soil too, That's which gives right. you your mycelium. Right. And so your mycelial networks, for those of you out there that don't know, they're like the, the internet of nature. The mycelial networks, you know, are, is, a, is a web that goes underground that does all the nutrient transport. Um, <laughs> there, even the communication at, network, right? Exactly. Yes, exactly. It's so interesting. Mycorrhizal, uh, mycorrhizal uh, fung fungi, I think, right? Yes. Mycorrhizal, yeah. And they found that a lot of these mycelial networks, they can actually, um, they can signal one side to the other, and it's 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 superconductive, meaning there's no latency. That's in, amazing. In the signaling. So that's why people have traditionally always liked black soil, dark soil. Dark the, soil. The dark soil is indicative of carbon and especially this, this specific type of carbon. And I got turned on to this by an, a, a biodynamic farmer. And he's like one of those golden spoon people that I've met in my life. Everything he's ever told me has been perfect. Like he's like, yeah, <laughs> you should look into biochar. And I did. Oh my God. He was That's telling great. me about terra preta. Have you ever heard of that? The terra preta? So, so yeah. they found in the Amazon, they found these tracks of very dark earth that were engineered. Mm. So yeah, as they yeah. uh, as they've been mowing down the Amazon to to run cattle down there, the, the 
they would find like they would go they would have like you know 100 meters of bauxite clay going in one direction and then they would just hit a, a perfectly engineered swath hmm. of biochar that would run miles hmm. it, they started to look into these like into this terra preta which is biochar they started to like dig into it and they would find at the bottom of the of the terra preta they would find fragments of all these clay vessels hmm. only at the bottom hmm. and so looking and taking you know uh, sky photography and starting to map all this it was very evident that what the conquistadors talked about when they first went into the Amazonian basin, the conquistadors said it was the most agriculturally intensive area in the world. They didn't mm. talk about it as being a jungle. Mm. They talked a bit about it as being like very, very heavily farmed in the 1500s. So this was uh, people way back who figured out how to make the biochar. Wow, Precisely. Really yeah. And so the Amazonians, you know, before they died off from, from whatever, the they were heavily farming that region of the world and they used the, all the biomass that wanted to grow so fast they would do a chop and drop system all that biomass would fall over these clay pots they would light the clay pots cook down the biomass and then cover it with earth and plant it over again wow and that's they did so this interesting line after line I after see. line that's beautiful, isn't it? So we should be doing something like that, huh? In the tropics, it's really the only way to go. Like yeah, in the tropics, really you, you technically like should have a canopy, especially like in Central America. Uh -huh. Like if, if there were no humans, it would just be a canopy forest. There wouldn't be, you know, all the foods that us humans like to eat in the ground. Mm -hmm. It would have been, mm -hmm. you know, essentially an arboreal, zone tropical mm -hmm. arboreal zone from coast to coast and you know if you're walking on the ground you'd be lucky if sun was hitting you because you were in the deep canopy of that of that forest it's not mm -hmm. meant for the nutrients to be in the ground it's meant for the nutrients to be up in mm -hmm. the canopy of the trees and then the ocean because you live in an area where you get all these great trade winds right mm -hmm. the trade winds especially on islands and areas like the in uh, the Caribbean, those winds have tons of minerals in them from the ocean. That's yeah, interesting. In the natural trees, the, the I should say the indigenous trees of that area pick, get their nutrient uptake. Out of, out of the air. That's really interesting. Yeah, you look at the root balls of some of these 100, 150 foot trees and the root ball only goes down a foot. So they obviously aren't getting the nutrients from the soil. No, so that's, <laughs> that's why really I like fascinating. I love that. I, I actually always advocate walking along the shore in the water to get good grounding, but yeah. breathing the ocean air because there's nutrients in there. I always say you can get sulfur, you know, hydrogen sulfide gas in the air can provide you with sulfur. Oh, out of all the groups of athletes I know, surfers are by far the healthiest. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So take up surfing. <laughs> That's if you want to be healthy, take up surfing. Surfers, like no matter what their age or whatever, you know, like as a whole group, like to lump them, because I get to I get to massage them all. Right. I'm like, I'm like, 
if if you're going to do a sport surfing is the sport yeah it's an all-body exercise and it's also out in the sun so that's also important because i think exactly. the sunlight is really valuable and you've got the ocean air and you've got the water for the grounding so i can see why it would be a fantastic sport mm-hmm. in that respect now remember you talking i mean i've i've listened to everything of yours online it it must have been like six or seven years ago. Weren't you talking about something with the sulfur, the sulfur intake, and your capacity for vitamin D? Like, wasn't there a connection? Well, that's another sulfated molecule, vitamin D sulfate. Okay. When your body, when you uh, get sunlight exposure to your skin, your body makes vitamin D sulfate and it ships it out into the water, into the blood as mm-hmm. a sulfated molecule. If you take vitamin D as a supplement, you actually, the liver has to package it up and put it inside LDL particles. It actually raises your LDL level mm. because it doesn't, it doesn't, if it doesn't have the sulfate, it, it's not, can't go out loose in the blood. So the, um, so that it's better to get, that's one of the reasons why it's better to get your vitamin D from the sun. But of course, you're not just getting vitamin D. When you get sunlight exposure, it actually catalyzes the synthesis of sulfate in the skin. Mm-hmm. And so it increases uh, both uh, cholesterol sulfate and vitamin D sulfate and supplies sulfate to the glycocalyx. We didn't get into that, but that's the heparin sulfate, which is so important systemically. Heparin sulfate, I mentioned that in the brain with respect to autism, but Mm -hmm. I think we are collectively heparin sulfate deficient as a population. Heparin sulfate, because that's this complex sugar chain and it builds this matrix the glycocalyx which lines all the blood vessels and produces gelled water mm-hmm. along the edges of the blood vessels so that the red blood cells can slide through a very slippery mm-hmm. um, layer in the capillary is that so like the, red the blood easy cells, water that the, the, that's the um easy water e- uh, exclusion zone water mm-hmm. which jerry pollock has written extensively about that he's a friend of mine he's really great um, mm-hmm. he really is the one who made me aware of the whole issue with sulfate in the glycocalyx and the importance of sulfate. Heparin sulfate is a highly sulfated molecule. It's a big complicated thing, you know, mm-hmm. with lots of sugars all hooked together with some nitrogen, it's, it's quite complicated, but it has sulfate. It has places where you can put sulfate on it. And, um, and then, so there's more, more, many more places where sulfate could go than there are sulfates. And so the body just kind of puts sulfates in various spots along this sugar chain. And if you don't have enough sulfate supply, it puts fewer. And when you put fewer, the, the water's not as gelled. The exclusion zone isn't as good. And stuff in the blood can get hooked in to the, uh, to the glycocalyx and taken up by the cell, things that they don't want. They can pick up on nasty things that can cause the cell, cellular stress. And that's again, the oxidation damage, the glycation damage, all these things that can happen to the cells lining the blood vessel if it doesn't have a thick, sulfur containing highly sulfate rich glycocalyx Mm -hmm. and i there's two papers that i've seen now one on um, covid19 and one on and just recently uh, a uh, preprint on the covid19 vaccines the mrna vaccines both of these papers are talking about deficiency in sulfate in the glycocalyx as a major driver behind severe disease and severe reaction to the vaccine and i think it's right i have felt that myself severe sulfate deficiency, which of course comes from excess glyphosate exposure. Okay, so I, I'm somebody that was diagnosed with having COVID. Mm-hmm. My COVID experience was like an extremely strong fever uh-huh. that, that knocked me knocked me to my knees. And 
my I had labored breathing. It was the first fever I've ever had where I had very labored breathing. Mm, interesting. I don't believe the the narrative that there was this like bug out there that was doing this. Uh-huh. I was under an extreme amount of stress when it when I when I went under. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. I wasn't taking care of myself the best way. I wasn't eating the best way. So I'm not I'm not gonna pin the 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 tail on the COVID donkey, right? But let's You've say been listening to Tom Cowan, right? <laughs> yeah. And I also had it in my mind, I the the media, because the when the COVID stuff came out, you know, it was like, oh, loss of smell, loss of taste, thought this, this, that, and the other. And so I was pre-programmed. I, I will admit that. But I have to say this that after I got COVID and after a bunch of people that I, I know. I've known my entire life, got COVID, all of us suffered one after effect. None of us, of the people I'm speaking about, none of us got the vaccine. None of us took any anything from the, the standard of care. But what we've all suffered from since then is a lack of respiratory conditioning. Hmm. It was like my, my ability to breathe deeply hmm never came back <laughs> oh, interesting huh. yeah it's a very odd thing and like two of the people i'm talking about were were olympic level athletes like i'm a i'm a, I'm a former professional athlete uh-huh. I, have, I have tremendous control over my body yeah wow. or at least i used to <laughs> and so like I'm not talking from a space of like somebody that doesn't have a high awareness level within, within my appropriate, like within how to handle myself. My, uh, my other friends that this happened to same thing, like very high level athletes. And we're all kind of like, man, what's the deal? Like the, the respiratory aspect. Yeah. Lung injury probably. Huh? Yeah. Is there anything with like what you're talking about with the, the salt? Well, like- I would say glyphosate because I mean, I I've written a lot about glyphosate linking glyphosate to severe COVID and COVID reactions. And, um, and I, my book has a chapter on glyphosate and the immune system and, and we can get into a little bit of, of the details here. Because, yes, let's uh, do it. <laughs> okay. So the lungs have these surfactants, you know, the lung cells, they release these surfactants that are able to trap viruses and there's a category of surfactants that are um, that are called. Um, they have a cholesterol-like stalk um, that they. I'm not a cholesterol. <laughs> sorry, collagen-like stalk, um, which is a part of their whole process of how they can trap the viruses. There's these. Uh, there's a, a number of different proteins that are produced by immune cells that are effective at trapping viruses, basically sort of like tar paper to trap them so that then the cells can take them off and clear them, right? I'm gonna assume there is a virus, by the way. Let me say there is a virus. It comes into the lungs. And and then the the, the surfactants in the lungs can trap the virus and allow the lungs to clear it. But those surfactants, they have this collagen-like stalk and collagen collagen is the most common protein in the body. 25% of our proteins are collagen molecules. They have long, long sequences of GXY, 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 where every third amino acid is a glycine. And I argue in my book that glyphosate's mechanism of toxicity is really unique to glyphosate. And it involves 
getting into proteins by mistake in place of glycine. It substitutes mm -hmm. for glycine because it is a glycine molecule. It fits right into the slot that makes it, the, the uh, assembly process recognize glycine. It fits and it just has this extra stuff sticking off of its nitrogen atom, which is outside of the, of the hole. And so the glyphosate gets put into the, into the string instead of glycine. And when you do that to collagen, you really mess it up. It, it can't form its triple helix anymore. It doesn't have its proper tensile strength and its elasticity. It doesn't hold water. I mean, lots of things go, go wrong. And in fact, I think for these surfactant proteins, they actually don't even get out of the cell. They get stuck inside the cell when they have too much glyphosate. That's what I suspect. I haven't proven that. But I do know, I, I got really interested in... Um, uh, e-cigarettes. I don't know if you know about e-cigarettes and um, this problem, this lung problem that they get um, mm -mm. if they smoke e-cigarettes. You don't know about no. that. Because no. that's something that's been showing up with, uh, with e-cigarettes. And I was fascinated by that because of the, the symptoms are a lot like the symptoms of severe COVID. It's a lung injury that happens with e-cigarettes. And there was a study on mice where they actually exposed them to um, the e-cigarette fumes and the mice developed this lung toxicity and they looked at it to see what was going on with these mice. And they found out they had these collagen-like stalk proteins who were getting stuck inside the cell and not, not being released. They identified that as a feature of these mice in their lungs upon exposure to these fumes, which I think contained glyphosate because the main ingredient of these e-cigarettes is glycerol. Glycerol mm -hmm. is a, um, it's the base. Mm -hmm. And glycerol is a byproduct of the biofuel industry. And the biofuel industry involves taking these plant residues after you've har harvested the crop and taking them to a, a, a manufacturing place where you turn them into biofuel. And the, and the waste product is glycerol loaded with glyphosate. I suspect that the glycerol has a lot of glyphosate contamination in e-cigarettes that are sourced from glycerol that came from a biofuel byproduct. Mm. This is a theory that I kind of developed to explain all of this. And then that toxicity that you see with the e-cigarette smokers, uh, it resembles the same toxic thing you see with the COVID virus. Uh, I think because the glyphosate is causing the same problem in both cases that the, um, and the virus of course is causing uh, immune reaction with our immune cells coming in and, um, and inflammatory situation, lots of oxidative damage. So you get, the, you get lung damage as a consequence of fighting the virus, but you bring in all these immune cells that can't uh, release, uh, they, can't, they can't fight the virus because they also release other uh, proteins that have these collagen-like stalks and all of it is messed up because of the uh, glyphosate. And so I think even the cities, you know, where we, we first saw the epidemic break out, starting with Wuhan and then in Northern Italy and then New York City, we kind of had this wave coming around. And part of it was of course, major cities with lots of people coming in so you could spread the virus, but um, they had very sick people um, you know, getting dying in the hospital with the severe COVID in those city environments where they, and all of those cities are, are places where biofuels are being developed and where um, they're being burned. You, you know, the, New York is big on biofuels. Uh, they have like uh, bio, um, biogas and, and they also have uh, biodiesel and of course bioethanol, all of those biofuels. Uh, they have this uh, biodiesel that's uh, being used in the trucks, you know, and um, buses. So there's a lot of, I think there's potential for glyphosate leakage from those biofuels uh, in the air, in the cities, causing um, people breathing glyphosate and they're getting it into their lungs. And then it's causing them to not be able to fight the virus properly. That makes a lot of sense to me. 
that makes a, a ton of sense to me. Because, you know, I have to say when I when I came down with it, it was during the 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 harvesting season and they were mm. obviously spraying a ton of glyphosate. I noticed that actually, because I noticed that the uh, areas like, you know, Dakotas and um, Nevada, these places that where they have um, crops that were being harvested around the harvest season was when they got the outbreak uh, of, of they, they were delayed. New York City got it early in March or April. And then it, was until, it wasn't until August, September that they started getting a big wave of COVID right at the time when they would have been spraying glyphosate on the harvest. And also in the agricultural areas of those states, not in the cities, but in the agricultural areas, there was a concentration there. Wow. So, okay, we're saturated with glyphosate. How do we actually, once we reduce the least the inputs from a dietary perspective, let's say we're able to reduce the inputs to zero. Are there anything that we can eat or any supplement that we can take to actually extract because we essentially have to wait have to get rid of maybe the biochar would probably work pretty well. Do you think it could? Well, I know people talk about that. Like there's a stack where you do, you take glutathione, like you talk about, and then also you take activated charcoal, which is mm -hmm. biochar. Yeah. And that's what I've been hearing. Activated charcoal. Um, yeah, there was a study on cows that I like to quote because it was um, these cows were sick and they tested glyphosate, found high levels of glyphosate in their urine. And they did an interesting treatment, which was uh, activated charcoal was one thing. And then humic acid and fulvic acid, which is this yes. complex organic matter from the soil. Mm -hmm. And then sauerkraut juice, which I thought was really interesting. Sauerkraut juice. Yes. I have a person in my life where she is the most militant person that I know when it comes to eating organic. Mm -hmm. Good she, for her. With every meal she has some sort of fermented something and she's yes. gorgeous zero there you go. <laughs> fermented foods in general i think are really really healthy and for lots of reasons but but one is just the microbes themselves and it's possible there aren't many microbes that can break down glyphosate it has this difficult cp bond that stumps most species but there are some forms of acetobacter that can break it down and so i'm wondering whether the sauerkraut juice had some live acetobacter in there that were able to actually break down the glyphosate because that would be that's what you want to do you want to break it down you don't want to just pass it out through the feces or pass it out through the urine you know you want to break it down mm -hmm. and uh, that's much harder to do because you need uh, you can break it down with things that are oxidizing agents um, in fact sunlight can break down glyphosate um, and uh, oh, sunlight's yeah, so sunlight's helpful. In fact, I think that's really important for helping to clear it from the air, probably. Mm -hmm. uh, but it might be sunlight along with some other things that could help with the oxidizing. And so I, I was really happy to know uh, that when, to find out, you know, when they um, when they purify water at the water purification plants, they use chlorine chlorine based products. And um, chlorine itself is super, super toxic, but chlorine dioxide is a popular, especially in Europe, chlorine dioxide is used um, to- MMS. MMS, there you go. <laughs> Methyl, uh, I see, miracle mineral supplement, miracle mm -hmm. mineral supplement, MMS, a very controversial topic that uh, it's a the government- It's a chlorite, isn't it? Yeah, it's really cool, actually. It's chlorine dioxide, ClO2, which oxidizes to, to hypochlorite, um, and hypochlorite is something that um, the, my, the immune cells actually release hypochlorite in response to an infection. So they use it to kill bugs um, when you get an infection. The immune cells do that. 
And I think that corn dioxide, if you take it, it's helping the immune cells uh, to fight the bug. So it's partly it's an anti antibiotic. But the other interesting thing is that chlorine dioxide can break down glyphosate. So I think part of the benefit of chlorine dioxide is removal of glyphosate. It's an oxidizing agent and that makes it dangerous. You know, if you take too much, you have to be very careful about the amount. Uh, the government is very angry at anybody who dares to take it. You know, they really think it's terrible, which I find amusing because I actually did a study on the FDA's adverse event reporting system, a government you know, based uh, system that reports drug uh, side effects. Mm -hmm. And I looked at one year at that time, it was like 2017 that I, I took that whole year, 2017. And I looked at um, all the side effects that were um, associated with chlorine dioxide. Mm -hmm. And then all the side effects that were associated with two drugs that are antipsychotics that are um, approved to treat autism and heavily used on autistic kids. These are nasty, you know, in, uh, mind altering drugs, antipsychotics. And I can't remember their names because they have these complicated names, but there were two of them. I got all the side effects for those two drugs and all the side effects for chlorine dioxide. And I compared them. And what I found was those two drugs had huge numbers of really nasty side effects in the tens of thousands of really nasty side effects. And where um, even where they were indicated as the drug, because they're taking a lot of drugs and they'll say, this is the one that we think was probably responsible for the symptoms. They'll label it, you know. Mm -hmm. stand a standout drug and they'll say well they're taking these 13 drugs but this is the one we think so many of those cases where they were taking that drug that was the drug that was targeted as the one that the whoever wrote it in was suspecting was causing the symptoms and with chlorine dioxide there were just a handful of people who were even taking it and it was always listed as something else they were taking it was never targeted as the cause of their problem it was a huge huge difference between these two government approved drugs that are used to treat autism and they're causing things like, you know, growth of breasts and production of milk in men. I mean, it was very disruptive of their, um, of their endocrine system and mm -hmm. obesity, you know, huge weight gains and, and psychotic, even suicide risk of suicide and, you know, terrible things. These, these, uh, these other drugs had awful, awful side effects and lots and lots of cases. And whereas the coin dioxide was really, really innocent. So it frustrates me that the government is so severe and it's because it's super cheap, you know, mm -hmm. and, yeah, and it can be toxic. It, yeah. If you take too much, but there was a, there was a beautiful uh, one hour uh, documentary that's available on the web. I could send you the link. You could post it. If you have postings sure. below, you could post it. Um, it's a really good do documentary on chlorine dioxide. And it was done with interviewing different people. And the last third of it is about chl chlorine dioxide to treat COVID-19 and very, it had very good success rate. So it was, um, I, you know, it, you have to, again, small doses and mm -hmm. typically people uh, take it in small doses, but sort of uh, several times throughout the day, almost like drinking water with a little bit of chlorine in it type of thing is the idea. I found that to be the most effective. I, when I first moved to the tropics, I got a very bad case of leishmaniasis. Mm, and, wow. Um, after I was cured of that through electrical means, I essentially did a life machine and they did this protocol called the 777 protocol where they essentially zapped my body with Interesting. The, the dissonant frequency to the leishmaniasis. And wow. so I, I didn't take a chemical intervention. My partner at the time, she took the chemical intervention and it destroyed her thyroid. Oh no! I forget. I forget oh, what, it was. Um, it was a heavy metal. I forget which heavy metal it was, but um, 
we every year would twice a year we would go ahead and do the MMS as a parasite protocol. Yeah, I mean it, it certainly is an antibiotic, so um, that's part of you know, how it works. But the cool thing to me is that it can break down glyphosate, and that could be part of the beneficial effect. Well, I'm thinking now that's probably more of what was being a benefit to me because I was doing other anti-parasite things. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really love the electrical protocols along with the turpentine. As, as mm-hmm. I've heard of to that do. too. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. There's so many fascinating. I have to say, I'm excited about all the different um, naturopaths, all these different things that are being uh, recommended as ways to treat disease that have to do with natural products, you know, mm-hmm. all these plant-based medicines and whatnot. It's going back to really ancient Chinese medicine and ancient Indian uh, mm-hmm. Ayurvedics. I mean, I think uh, those medicines are really uh, valuable and they, they took a long time to figure out what works for what and that we should trust them, you know? Well, I think the only thing that's keeping India's population so great are two things, ghee and curcumin <laughs> there you go absolutely I mean, the, fantastic like things. how could you live in such a polluted i know that's a populated really area but they yeah, have those ghee. are fantastic they have ghee and curcumin in every right yeah that's that's well said very interesting yeah because ghee i mean ghee i mean geez like if you talk to the to the western price people they look at ghee literally as like liquid god yeah it's it's really uh good food and of course butter also in general uh grass-fed butter i love that as as a choice for fats for fats we mostly use grass-fed butter and organic lard as our for cooking oil um in in my household yeah i think those are the best fats i wanted to talk say a little bit about um I was thinking of infection. I was thinking of uh, Africa, you know, and Africa has done very well with COVID. I think you probably know that very low uh, rates of death from COVID in Africa. And, um, and one thing um, I got interested in was uh, Africa. Of course they, they use. um, uh, Sorry, my, my dog is my dog. (laughs) Sorry about that. Yeah. Um, hydroxychloroquine, right? Hydroxychloroquine was used to treat malaria, right? Isn't that right? Or is ivermectin? So those two, hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin are much more- We make hydroxychloroquine. Like that's- that's. Oh, wow. That's cool. Wow. That's that's the bee's knees in this household. That's really great. Yeah. So those two, that's what I took when I got COVID and I I breezed right through it. I was pretty sick on the first day and then I started taking those two and um, I was fine. But, um, but the other thing that I thought of is, is um, tuberculosis. Very, very interesting. I, I, I think I came across it first because I found an article that was suggesting that the tuberculosis vaccine might be protective against COVID. And I was like, that's really weird, you know? And I suspected it wasn't the vaccine, but the disease, not the vaccine, but the disease that was protecting you from COVID. And I got interested in that and I started studying it. And I got really interested when I looked at some maps of the um, rate of COVID-19, there was a color map of the rate of COVID-19 across Africa. Each state had a different color depending upon whether it was severe or, or not mm-hmm. in Africa. And then I found another color color coded map with um, tuberculosis, the rates of t- uh, deaths from tuberculosis uh, color coded with the different countries. And when you looked at those two maps together side by side, you could see that the ones that were low over here were high over here. There's an exact inverse image it was very well um, matched inverse image. Whenever tuberculosis is high, COVID deaths are low. 
and vice versa or COVID cases, I think it was vice versa. So that's like really interesting, right? Mm -hmm. How can that be? What can, what can that mean? And I actually, um, so I, I don't know how I hooked it up to vitamin K2, but I did. Vitamin K2, as you probably know, is a very important vitamin. We're deficient in it, uh, many of us, and um, K2 is made by uh, microbes. And so um, one of the, uh, the, the, <laughs> the microbe that causes tuberculosis, which is mycobacterium tuber tuberculosis, makes a version of K2, it's menaquinone sulfate. It's a sulfated version of K2. And it's the only sulfated version of K2 known by, by, by the research community. It's a unique K2 sulfate that's produced by the mycobacterium tuberculosis. So where am I going with that? Because that microbe, so many people where they have, where tuberculosis is endemic, 80% of the population is infected with it, but they don't have any symptoms, they're fine. Mm. And that's because they're healthy, you know, as long as you're healthy, you can just let this microbe live in your body and not cause you any problems. Meanwhile, it's making menaquinone sulfate for the host. I think a lot of these microbes are making useful things for the host. Definitely. And so that that's supplying both the vitamin K2 and the sulfate to the host. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a very useful microbe. Now, the really interesting thing is that glyphosate has been patented as an antibiotic, as an antimicrobial agent. And in that patent, one of the microbes they listed specifically that it's good at killing is mycobacterium tuberculosis. It kills it. And when you look at the rate of tuberculosis in our country over time, compared to the rise in the use of glyphosate on core crops, they're backwards. Yeah. Tuberculosis goes down as glyphosate goes up. So that mm -hmm. all makes sense to me that glyphosate is killing mycobacterium tuberculosis, which is then introducing a vitamin K2 sulfate deficiency which is contributing to the uh, severe COVID because you've got a problem with K2 is uh, there's papers that show that low K2 is a really bad risk factor for COVID. And, uh, and of course the sulfate situations also have got papers. So I think, I think that mycobacterium tuberculosis is something you want to have. <laughs> if yeah. you're a, if you're a healthy person, it's going to help you out, you know? And I think that's true for a lot of these microbes. I mean, that's the whole point of having all the fermenty foods, right? Is you have like you increase, increase your internal bot microbiome you yeah. want it to be complicated with lots of different species yeah. and, and comfortable and you know there's so many papers now talking about microbiome disruption you know and all associated with all these different diseases and uh, but most of the papers don't mention glyphosate they, they don't yeah. think of glyphosate but that is a key player in the disrupted microbiome that is uh is so so common in our society and people have a lot of issues with you know constipation and, and um inflammation in the gut and gas you know bloating. If, if, uh, if you were going to narrow down like what causes constipation because i have lots of clients that are, have constipation like that's a I've, great I've never had that problem so but, <laughs> like i know a lot of people where it's like when they tell me how little that that happens for them i'm like you're you're full of bs like <laughs> you can't live like that but there's a lot of people that rarely defecate. Like it's incredible. Oh, they won't go for a long time, right? They're yeah. so constipated. They can't. That's really amazing. Well, I can give you two reasons why. I, go. I wrote about it in my book too, because it's one of those diseases or conditions that's going up dramatically along with glyphosate usage. And um, one thing for sure is that serotonin could be implicated because serotonin is important for helping 
to move the, the bowels. Um, and serotonin is a product of the shikimate pathway. So shikimate pathway produces three aromatic amino acids. Wait, you're taking me back to AP biology. Glyphosate <laughs> <laughs> disrupts you, the shikimate pathway. Yeah, you gotta tell people key. what that is. Yeah. So the shikimate pathway is a biological pathway in plants and, uh, and in many microbes um, that is essential for producing the aromatic amino acids. And those are tryptophan, tyrosine, and phenylalanine, the aromatic amino acids. They're part of the building blocks of proteins. But those aromatic amino acids are also precursors for all kinds of very useful biologically active molecules, including all of the, um, the, the neurotransmitters, serotonin, melatonin, dopamine, um, uh, adrenaline, thyroid hormone, they all come out of that shikimate pathway. Also melanin, the skin tanning agent, mel uh, natural skin tanning melanin, mm -hmm. all of those come out of the shikimate pathway. So when you are being poisoned by glyphosate, your microbes are being uh, unable to produce enough of those aromatic amino acids as precursors to those essential uh, biologically active molecules that are produced from them. And serotonin is, um, is important for gut health, for the um, gut to be able to vibe to um, push the, the mm -hmm. feces through the gut contraction of the of the gut now the other problem that i don't know but i suspect is myosin myosin is a contractile protein it's in muscle mm -hmm. uh, very important for the muscles to contract and of course there's myosin in the gut there's also myosin in the gallbladder that pushes out the, the bile acids and myosin is uh, so I always study proteins with respect to glycine. I look for glycine dependencies of those proteins because I always worry about glyphosate substituting the glycine, messing them up. And myosin is quite interesting because you, you can look at all the different species versions of myosin. They have different, you know, sequences are not identical, lots mm -hmm. of variation. But when you line them all up, which you can do with the computer, line them all up to get align them the best you can from many different species, and then you see there's these places where it's all glycine, like like these. Each of them is different, but they always want that glycine there. So there were like 11 places where all these different species were producing uh, a version of myosin that had glycine at those 11 places, which means that those glycines are important for that molecule. That's a way you can tell that glycine is important for it, that if glyphosate substitutes, it's gonna mess it up. And I found one article that talked about one of those glycines. I forget it was exact location, like 169, or this particular place on the sequence of the human protein, that glycine, they showed that if you if you swap it out for alanine, which is just one extra methyl group, very small change, the protein can only contract at 2% capacity. Oh. So you can wreck it just by putting one glyphosate in there uh, in place of that glycine. So this is where I think the myosin in the gut is getting a lot of insertions of glyphosate that are disrupting its ability to contract, which is then making basically paralyzing your gut. And actually there was an article about a woman who drank a Roundup to try to kill herself. And they reported on her symptoms. And one of the things they, they reported on was paralytic gut. The, the gut was paralyzed by the glyphosate. So I suspect that's messing up the myosin. That makes so much sense. Is there a link? Have you seen a link? Um, Cause I'm much more hands-on with, with clients. So I make these like, connections that I probably shouldn't make. But one thing I've seen is I've seen these women that are hypermobile. Like mm, it's yes, like hypermobility. Yeah, absolutely. That's yeah. collagen. The collagen is messed up. Actually, there's a lot of glycine mutations in collagen that can cause that problem. From wow. glycine mutations in collagen. And is we it, have, it's increasing also over time with the increase in glyphosate usage. 
there's a link between the hypermobile women and constipation. Oh, that makes sense to me because glyphosate causes both. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So you're a fully saturated glyphosated being. Yeah. Your <laughs> right. proteins, the glycine has been kicked out. The glyphosate's been inserted. So how how do you rectify this? You, you talked yeah. about drinking the humic. Uh, humic acid, fulvic acid, um, biochar or activated charcoal and uh, sauerkraut juice, which also apple cider vinegar. I take apple cider vinegar every day um, with the hope that it might be metabolizing the glyphosate. So, you know, Pseudomonas ergonosa is another example of a bug that's become a problem in the hospitals that's causing some serious infections. And that's one of the very few bugs that can break down glyphosate. So I think it's actually um, providing a service for the host by removing the glyphosate, but then causing symptoms because it's it's a pathogen and messes things up. Which we have a lot of situations. I, I didn't hear you correctly. Pseudomonas, Pseudomonas aeruginosa. Yeah, you can read about that. There's, they've had a lot of issues with that as an infection that breaks out in the hospital uh -huh. um, and can kill people who come in with a minor problem and end up get, catching that bug and, and dying because it can be very dangerous, especially to people who have a very poor immune system, which of course you have if you've been exposed to glyphosate. So I think a lot of the problems we're seeing, you know, with the infections and autoimmune disease and cancer, all of those are caused by a disrupted immune system, which... Um, which glyphosate is causing. Uh, many things are probably causing that, but certainly glyphosate is one of them. And also I worry about the messenger RNA vaccines with respect to that as well. Mm -hmm. What do you, the, so I'm kind of confused now because I've been listening to a bunch of different doctors. I've interviewed a few that have different theories on what autoimmunity actually is. Mm, okay, that's a topic that's dear to my heart. So would either way. Mind, would you mind defining it from like the way, let's just say the the standard of care looks at autoimmunity and then go into what you think it actually is? Well, so I'm not sure what the definition is with respect to the standard of care. Do you? You, I don't. you don't know either. I mean, I think they're experts, you know, who are studying biology and especially studying the immune system are understanding what's happening with it. Um, they don't quite know why, but what, what I think is that uh, actually it's a problem with the thymus gland. Do you know about the thymus gland? No, do you tell. Yeah, so thymus I've heard gland. Of it. Is, I just don't know what it does. It's very little, you know, it's not mainstream. I mean, most people don't know anything about it, probably. I even didn't know much. It was one of the last uh, organs that I sort of got interested in when I realized I should. I had read a book actually, probably in the 1980s or 1990s. I read a fascinating book about the immune system and how the immune system uh, develops, which is super fascinating. And it's the thymus gland. So it starts out with these precursor cells in the bone marrow. Now, the baby, when it's born, it needs to sort of build a mature immune system. And the big trick is to be able to be ready to attack anything foreign, uh, but to not, not be willing to attack your own tissues. So you have to make sure that the immune cells that you let loose um, are not going to be um, able to develop antibodies to your own tissues. Mm -hmm. And it's a fascinating process that takes place in the thymus very early in life, even before birth, it gets started. And then it goes on, especially in the first year of life, and then up until probably maybe 10 years old or something, the, the kid is, is learning. The thymus is exposed. There's a whole process by which the thymus, the immune cells, <laughs> the precursor cells come from the bone marrow, they go to the thymus, and then they, can, they convert into different things, all these different kinds of immune cells. But there's um, the T cells 
uh, need to be trained, they, they come out of the thymus uh, ready to go, but with some specific training such that they're able to recognize certain kinds of protein sequences that might occur in foreign proteins, but that they're not sensitive to any sequences that resemble human proteins. So the, the ones in the thymus, these, they, they sort of flowers bloom. You know, they try all these different combinations of ways to be. Uh, these T cells are developing into all these different, because they're getting actually genetic mutations and just changing you know, their, um, their antibodies to say, I want to be uh, specific to a range of, um, of possible proteins that, we might, that might come at me. Mm -hmm. um, and I want those to be foreign. So if one of them puts together something that's very, um, the thymus exposes them to all these different human proteins. And if, if this one binds really well to one of those human proteins, it's ant, kill it, you know? So it mm -hmm. gets rid of all the ones that bind to human proteins. And then if it doesn't bind to human proteins, it lets it loose. And now it can go find some foreign proteins and, and develop antibodies to those. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes. So it's selective processing that goes on in thymus where the, the guys that picked a good choice, they get to go out the door. And the ones that happen to pick something that binds really strongly to some human protein, they killed, it's killed. Mm -hmm. And then in between, there's an in-between zone where it kind of binds to human proteins, but not so much. And those are interesting too. Those actually can become one of two things, either a cell that will go out and attack perhaps a human protein, but not so much, right? Sort of weaker attack, but it still could find some, some other foreign proteins uh, to, to attack and also clear something. Mm -hmm. And then the other half of them come out as what's called TREG cells, T regulatory cell cells. And these are also uh, ones that have, are able to bind weakly to human proteins. So they could cause autoimmune disease, but they actually reverse their role and they can actually protect from, they can turn down the gain on the inflammation that's induced by those other guys. So you've got these two competing pools Mm -hmm. in that in-between zone, the ones that can, can bind to human proteins, but not so much. You've got some that are saying, no, 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 turn down the gain on the inflammation. And some that say, no, 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 turn it up. They kind of fight with each other. Mm -hmm. And as you age, what happens is the thymus gets sick and it actually deteriorates and it gets involuted, it's called, over time. Mm -hmm. And involuted, it gets, it gets shrivels up and it gets, you know, and, and I think that the rate at which the thymus gets involuted is a, a biological age. It's a marker of a biological age. So if your thymus is being assaulted by things that are accelerating the rate at which it becomes involuted, you are increasing your risk to both autoimmune disease, cancer, and also infection, all three, because you're no longer able to keep those self-reactive um, guys at bay. You get an imbalance uh, between pools of immune cells that can uh, attack the cell or turn down the gain. So if you have too many tregs, you get cancer because the tregs, the uh, immune cells actually attack the cancer cells and clear them. Mm -hmm. Those guys that could be also causing autoimmune disease, they attack the cancer cell, but then the, the tregs come in there and they, sh they shut them down. They say, no, no, you can't attack the cancer, let it grow. <laughs> and so, you know, so it's, it was balanced. It's an imbalance between these two pools, one way or the other, that's either going to cause autoimmune disease or cancer as you age, because your thymus got destroyed, the reason is because it got destroyed. It can't make new cells um, that can be competent to attack new things that you are exposed to. It's really, really fascinating to me. And I've been reading a lot of stuff on that recently because I believe the mRNA vaccines are causing uh, accelerated thymic involution, which is causing accelerated aging of the immune system, which is causing increased risk to autoimmune disease, cancer, and infection, all three.
Yeah, so our health span is being reduced very quickly with this. What is what's that? What's the agent within the mRNA vaccine that's doing that? Uh, a couple of things: uh, the spike protein and the um, the the uh, cationic lipids. The the uh, ionizable cationic lipids that they put in there, which are really crucial for um, getting uh, the vaccine RNA out before it gets digested. It comes out of the endosome before it reaches a lysosome and then it starts making protein. So they have the cat, the ion, ionizable cationic lipid is a synthetic uh, um, fat, synthetic mm -hmm. lipid um, that's put into the vaccines to, to regulate, to make sure that the RNA can um, get copied into protein. And so the, um, but that's also very, very toxic to the cells yeah, and it can cause this inflammasome. Yeah, so it causes this inflammasome. Uh, it's a NRLP3 inflammasome gets activated and that leads to a whole process um, that ends up, um, you know, destroying things basically. The, the thymus, so actually I think the, uh, if you want the details, it's actually kind of fun. So I'm just working this out now and I'm really excited about it because yes, especially, you know, yeah. So you get the vaccine in your arm muscle goes into the muscle. Um, the muscle cells take up the, um, the particles and start making lots of spike protein. They get really, when they do that, they're very stressed. And so the stress brings in the immune cells, the immune cells come in the dend dendritic cells. There's all these different kinds of immune cells, but the dendritic cells come in reacting and trying to solve the problem by taking the, the, the spike protein, which is the antigen. You need to make antibodies, right? The whole thing with the vaccine is to make antibodies. And the dendritic cells take up, um, well, they first of all also take up the nanoparticles because it's not through H2 receptor. The virus comes in through H2 receptor and the immune cells don't have that. But the nanoparticles are like LDL particles. They come in through a natural process and they transfect the immune cells. So the dendritic cells, are not only sort of cap capturing the spike protein that's been displayed on the surface of the muscle cells, but they're also making their own spike protein at this point because they've taken up the nanoparticles. And those dendritic cells rush into the lymph system, go to the lymph nodes, start swelling it up. Because a lot of people get swollen lymph nodes because they're trying to get uh, help from the, they, they need the T cells and B cells to make the antibodies. And that's where they're in the lymph system. So they come in here and they start, um, really causing a lot of um, stress, a lot of oxidative stress. Um, but then the really interesting thing is that they become activated and they're, and they're looking at spike protein and they're trying to develop antibodies to that. Um, but the interesting thing is that when they get activated like that, a certain percentage of them actually go back to the thymus. This is so interesting to me. They go back to the thymus and that's really to train the thymus to get it started to be producing new uh, immune cells that will be specific to the spike protein. They want to train that. And, but the spike protein has a lot of sequences on it, especially in the receptor binding domain that are similar to sequences in human proteins. So you would take this foreign protein to the thymus and say, hey guys, here's these proteins, we need some antibodies. And again, they're gonna go through that process of um, selection to say, uh, this one's really good because it doesn't really bind to human cells out the door. Uh, uh oh, this one's in trouble because it binds to human cells, kill it, you know, et cetera. But that whole process actually gets broken down in the thymus and in part because the thymic uh, cells, the thymic ep uh, ep <laughs> epidermic cells in the me medullary thymus epidermic cells, MTEX, uh, those guys actually get poisoned by the spike protein. They have H2 receptors. They get killed by the spike protein that comes into the thymus 
And when they get killed, that's when you get the thymic involution, you get the inability to make new ones and you start releasing these, um, these immune cells that are sensitive, that are self-sensitive, mm -hmm. that are gonna self-reactive, the ones that are gonna cause autoimmune disease are now being let loose because the thymus is sick. It's sick because of the spike protein and also because of the, of the nanoparticles because the, um, the cationic lipid uh, is also uh, being supplied to the thymus and that's really, really toxic. So um, the thymus is getting wrecked basically, I think. And that's lots of other things are getting wrecked too like the endothelial lining of the blood vessels. But the thymus I suspect is a, a major problem with the um, accelerated um, decline of the immune system because of attack on the thymus. This is massive because this is a, this is what I've heard over and over and over again is that say you get COVID, even you know whether you got the vaccination or not, it seems like this involution of the thymus seems to be like across the board what what the majority of us are experiencing. I think so. I think both the disease and the vaccine. I think the vaccine's better at it than the disease, uh, in part because of the um, extra. First of all, this very sturdy RNA that keeps on making uh, spike protein for a long time. They've seen four months later. You know, it's still around. So the messenger RNA is really sturdy in the vaccine, whereas the messenger RNA in the virus is actually very fragile. And, and the virus can be killed by the immune system, assuming it's working. But of course, the immune system is disrupted by glyphosate. So it's hard to kill the virus. So either way, you're gonna get a lot of spike protein, you know, mm -hmm. and then the spike protein is toxic uh, through the ACE2 receptor, it's toxic to those um, epithelial cells in the thymus, which is what's gonna be a direct path to thymic involution. This is amazing. I'm, I'm looking at a picture of the inflammasome and then I just love that word. I've heard it. Some, I know <laughs> that's really, I mean, that is really clear that that's what's, and that's what's happening in the lungs. When you get the infection, people get this massive inflammation in the lungs and tissue damage in the lungs, you know, as a consequence of the virus, if they can't clear it quickly. Yeah. Cause I, I keep, that's the thing that I keep coming back to is the people that I know that have had this, including myself, our lung capacity is diminished. Mm -hmm. And then now I'm just trying to think about it, like now seeing where the thymus is in the body and like actually where the signaling, where I was actually being signaled was like right behind the sternum. Mm -hmm. mm, interesting. Wow. So this is very interesting. What can people do for thymus health? Is <laughs> I don't know. I mean, certainly eating certified organic food, getting lots of sunlight, eat, eating lots of sulfur. Um, eating vitamin and mineral rich foods and eating foods that have a lot of um, polyphenols and flavonoids, you know, the herbs and spices, really yeah. um, healthy, healthy food. Um, also, cert of course, certified organic and, um, and whole foods. Don't right. eat a soy protein bar, even if it's organic, <laughs> you know, or Coke. No, none of, that, none of that in my house. Mm -hmm. I mean, Dr. Senef, you've, you've, crushed it for two hours i'm i'm at i'm i'm at my limit right now <laughs> <laughs> well i'm i'm impressed that i i enjoyed this so much that i don't even feel tired usually if i do a two-hour interview i'm completely beat but uh you were great i really enjoyed talking to you and i enjoyed what you shared too well thank you, you helped me 
Thank you very much. I will, once I get my uh, product in, in a shippable form, I'll send you some biochar. Excellent. That way you can Thank play you. with it in your little garden. Um, it's something that I've just been into for 10 years. And I'm, I'm now, the more I look at everything, like the, the meta side of things, it's just like, if you want quality, you kind of have to parse it and do it yourself. It's just, that's just, I think so. That's just what it is. And, and, or be friends or know the people that are actually creating it. Like things right. have to be really local. <laughs> so that's what I've been working towards in my life. And um, you, your information throughout the years has been a wonderful light for me to follow. It's been a wonderful beacon. And I really appreciate everything that you've done. If uh, people want to find your work, where should they look? Um, I have a webpage, stephaniecenter.net, um, that they can check out. Um, and if you search, if you remember the name Senef, S-E-N-E-F-F, it's pretty rare. So mm. you can search that on the web and you'll find you'll find people critical of my work, you know, <laughs> calling me conspiracy theorists and whatnot. But um, you'll also find there's a lot of interviews on YouTube and whatnot. Um, well, you fit, various interviews. You fit the model of all the real genius people I know because you're cross-disciplinarian. Uh, that's true. But yes. Like, I don't know. My background is uh, actually I had an undergraduate degree from MIT in biology and then MSEE and PhD degrees, two different degrees uh, in computer science and electrical engineering. So that's kind of a pretty broad background. But I think my computer science training has helped me to um, look at biology in a kind of a more um, systemic way to try yeah, to figure you, out. You sound like a systems engineer to me. Like when I listen yeah. to you, like it's like the I, I can just see the brain diagram working. <laughs> I like to connect dots. He's a systems engineer. This makes complete sense. Yeah. Well, Dr. Senef, um, I'm going to send everybody your way. And I really look forward to talking to you in the future. The more, the more I start to understand and I'll give you updates of what's going on with my family health and all the rest of it. That would be great. Thank you. It's been my pleasure to talk to you. And I really like what you're doing and the message that you are illustrating just by living the way you're living to get other people to think about living like that too is really really great so thank you wonderful well you have a wonderful afternoon and we'll talk soon bye bye thanks dr stephanie senef is your mind just a quivering mass of cytoplasm right now <laughs> i know mine is um so you see the link, don't you? Glyphosate is essentially a molecule that mimics glycine. Glycine is a building block for all the proteins in your body. And when you consistently expose yourself to this molecule, it makes its way into your body and it makes things permeable that should not be permeable. <laughs> And you go into a very inflamed state because the body doesn't know what is going on. Um, I have this incredible knowledge around things, permeable, non-permeable, semi-permeable because of all the different professions that, that, I've, that I've taken on, my love of biochar, my love of um, structured water, 
all these things essentially deal with creating a boundary layer and what type of perforation the boundary layer has. With biochar, you have carbon that has a boundary layer that is super, super semi-permeable and this structures water in a very specific way. I hope you caught during our interview that she is talking about the easy, the exclusion zone water that happens in our body that is disrupted by glyphosate. And the if I was to summarize what happens in our system is when we have the stressors of time, of bad diet, of electromagnetism. When I say bad diet, I, I should use the word inappropriate diet. Um, when all these things are occurring in our system, the exclusion zone water, which is our superconductor in our body, diminishes. And as this diminishes, we become <laughs> permeable. <laughs> it's almost like nature saying, okay, you, you, it's your time to, to exit stage left. I'm going to just start to uh, make you more of the air element, makes you more permeable. And then your defense mechanisms go haywire. And when you can't defend yourself internally, um, this is when your health span greatly reduces. This is when you don't have vitality. And um, I'm just, I'm beside myself listening to Dr. Senef and then going through all the anecdotal evidence I have of my clients that I work with on a on a one-to-one -one basis. And um, this is some this is a a podcast I'm going to listen to over and over again. Um, it's obvious she's become a friend to the show, and she'll she'll definitely be back on. As soon as I get the documentary from her that she says, I'll post that in our Telegram chat. I'll put the Telegram chat link in, in the bio of this. And um, please just check her out at doc, or it's uh, stephaniesenef.net. And it's Senef is spelled S-E-N-E-F-F.net. And I'll put that link in the show notes also. If you like what I'm bringing to to the audience of bringing to you guys, please support. Um, the price of hosting has gone up significantly, um, which is really good. We're producing enough video, we're producing enough uh, media where it take you know I have to pay for for um, hosting, so that's good. Um, I'm producing now all the work myself, so there's there as my learning curve you know, I guess you would say peaks, then the production time will be quicker. Uh, we have lots of things. All my experimentation with the biochar is off the charts right now. I'm uh, doing two cooks a day, producing probably about 60 pounds of biochar a day. And um, I couldn't be happier with the product and I'm able to make uh, bigger, bigger, I'm able to cook bigger pieces of wood now, which gives me a totally different product. And uh, I will elaborate on that in a different podcast when it comes to what the heartwood uh, biochar should be used for relative to other things. So um, this all feeds together. 
you know, our health, our capacity for our hardware to work helps our software do its thing. So I really appreciate your support. And um, I look forward to hearing from you guys in the chat. Once my wife and I secure babysitting, um, <laughs> then we'll be able to do our live stream. I'm going to set it up like the dark journalist. I love how the dark journalist has his wife in the background and uh, he'll, he'll field questions. I am not good at multitasking, so I can't like field questions in the chat as I'm doing it. I always get frustrated when I do interviews with people and I can see them reading the chat, and not really paying attention. Um, I don't want to do that to you guys. So uh, as soon as we get some babysitting, we will do our live stream. And uh, that's just family life, which is, I, want, I wouldn't have it any other way. So thank you again for all of your support. And I look forward to seeing you guys next week. You ought to know by now